Uh, Dear Pringles, now that I am no longer a child, I can't fit my hand inside of your tube of deliciousness. Work on that. The reply from Pringles. Pro tip, spit on it and push harder. Welcome back to a very delayed episode of the brand new and improved pod thing. I'm Corey, in case you forgot. I'm Antonio. What's up, my glip glops? Oh my goodness. Antonio, you're going to start us off strong this week. All right, look, right. I've got a question. Have you seen what's going on with Switch Online and the new announcements that came out? Uh, I have not. Aside from hearing about uh, Donkey Kong Country 3, I have not heard much else. So what have you got? So... Donkey Kong Country is coming out to Switch Online, finally. Woo! It's about time. We're also getting was, Natsume... Was it Donkey Kong Country or Donkey Kong Country 3? No, it's the first one. Oh, okay. I wish it was 3. Do you know how awesome that would be? It's almost like Nintendo's kind of abandoned the fact that that game ever existed. That game's hard as hell. I mean, yeah, but it was a lot of fun. So, that was announced. It's coming, finally. We get it. We get the great classic. And then we're also getting Natsume World Championship Wrestling, or Natsume Championship Wrestling, some SNES 2D wrestling game. And then we're getting, from EA, um, one of their NES RPGs. And that would be a game by the name of The Immortal, which is a weird isometric game on the NES. It's, it's weird. That one's not behind a paywall, is it? No, they are all on the uh, Switch Online. So as long as you have an active Switch Online collection, you can play all three of those games. But yet still no classic SNES JRPGs. Why they do this? I mean, we do get a couple. Not for online, but for download, certainly. Do I really want to have to pay for them when I can just subscribe and get them? And a lot of Nintendo... I mean, servers. I'm willing to pay for Star Ocean. Yeah, but that's also... I'm, I'm willing to pay for... Well, Star Ocean is also on Switch Online. I oh. I mean, if you look at it this way, here we are missing a bunch of classic Nintendo RPGs in general. You'd think they'd have Earthbound on the Switch Online. Clearly, we know Nintendo has ROM files for it if it was on the SNES Classic. Um... What about Mario RPG? Why haven't we seen that get a Switch Online release? I mean, we got Star Fox 2 on there, which was another SNES classic. But the only JRPGs we have on the Switch Online are Breath of Fire and Breath of Fire 2. You can count Link to the Past, but is that really an RPG? No. And at this point, who can't beat Link to the Past in a matter of a few hours? I mean, it is it is one of the best, admittedly. It's a, I love Link to the Past, but this is not for this is not a discussion of our love for Zelda. No, that's a, that's a whole other series. We're gonna we're gonna have to do a whole different month for that. Yeah, we'll figure out what a good Zelda month is at some point. I mean, at least we heard, hey, another episode we mentioned Zelda in. <laughs> we we we've gone six days without mentioning Zelda on this show. So here we are. Hooray for us! <laughs> right, we've got like whole... people in withdrawal. So announcement time. Announcement time. Announcement time. If you follow our social media pages, and obviously you do, if you're listening to us. Or if you've just looked at our name or our feed lately, it happens to have changed to PodThing. And I think we addressed this, I think, on the first episode we hosted together, that we were changing the name to PodThing. But Facebook yeah, was... decided to make this a pain in my ass. Yeah, that was a hard one fight. Holy so crap. for the better part of the last month, I've been emailing back and forth with Facebook to change our name. Lo and behold, they finally gave me a clear and present way to do it. We had to make a fucking announcement post for Zuck to see. Yeah, that was that was interesting. So we had, we we had tried in a couple of different ways. Well, Corey had tried in a couple of different ways, I should say, because he really headed that that endeavor up. 
uh, total, total credit to him for that because I just got to get all the notifications and goddamn that was annoying. And it's like <laughs> I, 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 I no, it's not your fault, it's their fault. But I, I think in the course of a day, like he he just told me he's like, yeah, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna make the change official. I'm like, all right, great, let's do it. And I got six or seven notifications that day, like just for that day. And it was like, yeah, your your name change request has been denied, has been denied, has been denied, has been denied. And I'm like, okay, what the fuck? Like, what what, what is going on here? With the, the reasonings. Right. And so I'm reading through all the terms of service. I'm like, what are we doing here that's wrong? I'm like, there's no misspellings here. Our name is not misleading. We don't have a misleading description. We're not selling a product that's inappropriate. We're not violating our terms of service in any way. You this, don't this doesn't make follow requirements sense. that requires Facebook approval for name changes. Yeah, it made no sense whatsoever. And of course, we did, again, it was a month. It was a month of this back and forth. And finally, we found out that all we had to do was make the announcement. And so Corey made the announcement. And wow, holy crap, that took all of, what, 10 minutes? You know what's funny is that announcement is the most viewed post we have ever had on our Facebook page. So kudos to our name change. That's, that's also kind of sad. I mean, yeah, I guess. But Like our shit more, listeners. God! I mean, seriously, guys, we'll come up, we gotta come up with a new name for our listeners. They were Thing of Tears, and I don't know if we're gonna keep that, because... Thing of Tears? Thing of Tears. Yeah, like Musketeers. Oh, Thing of Tears. Okay, I see. I thought, I thought you were, like, Thing of Tears, like, like something else. It was like a, you know... No. No. No, no, no. no. Okay, like, so... Club of the Musketeers, we had our Thing of Tears. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna need a name for you guys. So we'll uh, we'll put up a poll and we'll let you guys we'll we'll let you you are our current original listeners vote on what the uh, the next name for you is going to be. Yeah, we'll come up with a couple of ideas, but we'll let you vote from the few we discuss. What if we just call them? Well, let's let let let's let's spitball our suggestions after uh, after we post this one, so that way we can we can leave some a surprise. We wouldn't want to say anything that they like and then have it you know taken away from the final cut. You know that's right because I really have a good one based on the rec- on the direction we've gone the last couple of weeks with our talks. So look for that poll coming soon. We'll get it on Twitter. I'll get one on Facebook. Yeah, we'll we've see. got a we've got a we've got a couple of new changes coming within the couple in the coming months and weeks, and it's gonna be it's all for the better. We we are going to have a a uh, a much better, more organized podcast. As, and and as you guys have been seeing from the the feedback we've been getting, and we appreciate the increase in in viewership and listenership. Yeah, we most definitely do, and for those who stuck around, we actually really appreciate it, and hopefully you enjoy where we're going, because we're just having fun. It's just a conversation. It just so happens to a lot of times be space-centered right now. But that's a great well, part sci-fi about the summer. summer. Well, it's a great part it's about the summer. It's a sci-fi summer. summer. Yeah, it we're is trying to stick with all summer. the sci-fi themes, you know, it's, it's gonna... You know, but, and, and we're, we're, we're branching a lot into science fact, which is fantastic. And I'd say that's really what today's episode's... The bulk of it is, is science fact. I mean... Everything that we have listed that we want to talk about today is pretty much science fact, except for Rick and Morty. I mean, it, it could be science fact. It's it, it follows the string theory. We have all these different universes. Like by that logic, Doctor Who's science fact. It is. I'm not going to deny that. Wobbly, timey, wimey themes. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to deny that a madman slash woman in blue box is protecting the universe. You can't prove otherwise. Therefore, the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence. But, I mean, I don't know, then the, the burden of proof lies on you, because if you are suggesting that there is indeed a, uh, a blue man slash woman in a box protecting us. To be fair, when to only fair. the unexplainable remains, the only option must be what remains. Damn. That's deep. We do that. We do that here at Pod Thing. It's deep and explosive. We still have our summer of sci-fi going strong, but we can't really talk about sci-fi at the moment. We have that coming up, but let's talk about science fact for a minute. 
with some news today of a new kind of planet that was discovered. Did you hear about this? Uh, I did. You're referring to the gas giant whose guts were spilled all over the place? That was pretty awesome. Yeah, we get to see like the first looks into what the core of a planet of that size, much like Jupiter, Saturn, Neptune, Uranus, things like that, look like on the inside and how a planet's formed. And that's just really cool. Uranus is filled with gas. I mean, yes, but that's about what that, that's how they function. And I very do that's find true. it appropriate that a gas giant is named Uranus. Do you do you have Lord's Rings around Uranus? Not do you? You might want to get that checked. I'm, 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 I, I might when I when I sit on the toilet for too long. I think I, I think I develop a large ring around my anus. But thank well, you as long for asking. Nothing's orbiting you. I think we're okay, right? I'm not fat enough for anything to orbit me. I mean, if yet. you get a gravitational pull, let me know. That might be something worth videoing. I'm sure the listeners would love to see it. Listen, uh, the Family Guy <laughs> when uh, P- Peter takes the orange and uh, it it, it uh, orbits Chris. We know we didn't talk about what's that. We did not talk about. Not only did we not talk about the. Uh, well, we, we talked about the, the launch of the Dragon crew capsule, but we did not discuss the launch of the GPS-3 for oh, Space Force. Not. So let's talk about the Space Force satellite for a moment, because, yeah, I actually got to watch the launch thanks to my wonderful co-host here who texted me saying, hey, there's a space launch. In like two minutes, you might want to tune in. And so yeah, I that totally was pulled up the stream awesome. as I sat here and was doing some work at home. And let me tell you, I was not disappointed. It's always great to watch rockets launch things into space. You know, and what I've uh, I, and I made this point, of course, at the time as well. But it's uh, I, I, it's it's more important that I make it now that we're here on the show. Um, I am constantly blown away, especially currently, because of course, you know, we haven't we haven't seen. Uh, I mean, aside from the Soyuz, but the Soyuz is old tech. Is old tech. Um, but we haven't seen uh, rocket launches from the United States, you know, that have been super televised and everything, uh, really much since, uh, you know, aside, again, aside from a couple satellites here and there, but once the space shuttle kind of died out, even with SpaceX, SpaceX has been slowly building this process of efficiency um, in rocket technology. But it's so crazy uh, when you watch the old footage of the Saturn V rocket how long it takes it's it's you know it's usually between like a 7 and 11 minute launch you know um and and you watch the engines kind of spool up and everything and it just kind of starts to defy gravity and it defies it so slowly from the perspective of of the uh viewer with the camera and so you're like well it's still an amazing feat of engineering it's incredible you just watch it kind of you know very very slowly begin to levitate begin to levitate then pick up speed pick up speed pick up speed um, you know, up until you you remove the first stage booster, and then it starts to you know utilize the rocket equation, of course, to increase its propulsion into the atmosphere. But then you see it with the space shuttle. Space shuttle had a, a similar window of, of between a five to seven minute launch, you know, or five to eight minute launch. And now I'm watching these SpaceX launches, and it, it's both with the uh, the Dragon crew capsule on the Falcon. I believe it was a Falcon Heavy that they launched the Dragon crew capsule on. Correct me if I'm wrong. It, it, it was, was a Falcon Heavy. Correct. Uh, this one was a this one was a Falcon Nine, um, which uh, again is a it's one of their long-standing models. So they use they utilize the Falcon Nine, uh, which has the awesome Merlin engines on it. I think I think all of SpaceX's stuff has the Merlin engines on it. The Raptor's still in production. Um, but the uh, but the launch on this was like a three-minute launch, and like it it wasted no time. It didn't it didn't it didn't have to you know sit there and defy gravity slowly but surely, slowly but surely until it finally got there. Like no it like. From 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 ignition to low Earth orbit, we were looking at maybe three minutes. Like, and and the efficiency well, of rocket technology is just becoming right. incredible, and it's blindingly fast in comparison to a spool up time of of you've gone from eleven minutes to three minutes. And anyone who knows anyone who watches racing, 
you know, you understand that uh, increments, fractions of seconds eventually lead up into like minutes of difference. But then when you consider, you know, an 11 minute launch to get into low Earth orbit or an eight minute launch to get into low Earth orbit, as opposed to three minutes, like, holy shit, that's incredible. I mean, even by comparison, when they launched Dragon Crew, it was astoundingly faster than even what Apollo rockets in the Saturn V would have done. And, and, and rightfully so, of course. And, and now, I mean, don't get me wrong. And I also know a lot of that with the Saturn V was it had to have enough propulsion for it to actually leave completely leave Earth orbit, not even low Earth orbit orbit, where we're putting these satellites in the Dragon Crew console. It had to actually leave orbit and get into space. So I can understand why it was so large and maybe took so long. Because Gemini rockets didn't take as long as the Saturn V took to launch, but they still took a while in comparison to what, you know, the the SpaceX rockets, the Falcon Heavy, and even the Falcon, the Falcon 9 can do. Sure, absolutely. You know, and of course, keeping in mind, rightfully so, like the Saturn V, the, the Saturn V is a much bigger rocket. The Saturn, the Saturn V is 300 feet. Like it, the Saturn, it was absolutely enormous. Oh, I know. I've um, seen it. I've been around one in person. It's huge. You know, and so you have to consider, of course. Plus, uh, I don't want to use the term primitive technology, but it was. It was. It was the fucking 60s and 70s. It was primitive technology by comparison. Uh, even even for something like rockets, you know. But that's that's also to say that like, you know, the the Saturn V was infinitely more advanced than the V2. Absolutely. You know, be, because because that's what we do. We make better shit over time. But it's just it, again, I I just think it's crazy though when we consider how long we've been without these things. Um, you know. We consider how long we've been without this stuff, and then you consider, um, you know, where the, the direction that a lot of this stuff is going. Um, you know, how quick of a time frame uh, we were able to make these changes. I mean, yes, com comparatively quick, I guess is a good way to put it, because it's been a while since the last shuttle launch, but SpaceX has quickly, quickly advanced rocket technology since they've gotten involved. Which is even crazier, too, because when you consider the space shuttle launch... And think about... Well, if you think real, real quick... Let me finish my thought here real quick. Sure, sure, go ahead. But when you think about it with SpaceX and what they've done as an innovation in general to help with rocket launch to also help bring back down those costs was they innovated a way to make their rockets reusable instead of single-use like NASA did. Dump them in the ocean and fish them out if you can. But they never oh, absolutely. So, so NASA... I, and I, I found this out, of course. I, I mean, I... I, I imagine that something like this would happen, but I'd never, I'd never really thought about it. Um, NASA actually had to fish all of those things out of the ocean, um, or they had to destroy them. And the reason being, because under international law, uh, when when something, it's it's kind of like terra nullius, but it, that's not the correct term because terra nullius has to do with um, finding unoccupied land masses in the ocean that haven't been claimed by a principality or a government. It's kind of like a finder's keepers rule. So the ocean, uh, you, 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 we, have, uh, we, we fall under a law called Mare Librum, which means freedom of the seas. Now, all international waters uh, are, are, the, you know, are, are open to the free passage of all people, period. Like, that's the law. And it's, it's accepted by every country in the world. Every, every civilized country in the world accepts Mare Librum. Um, now, things that fall into the ocean that are not claimed by people or like are considered refuse are free game. So, especially during the time of the space race and going into the shuttle program, because the Russians even tried to copy our shuttle, they, they created one called the Baron, which, funny enough, if you actually look, uh, there's, uh, there's a, a channel that I like on, on YouTube, um, and, and we'll discuss that further at another date. Basically, when he goes over the plans for the Baron and its functionality in comparison to the space shuttle, the Russians built a better shuttle, but that, that came from open source information that was available to them 
that they purchased. Uh, but neither here nor there, really. But essentially, what it comes down to is all of the the rocket boosters that fell into the ocean. There were countries that were waiting just to pick up those used rocket boosters so they could attempt to reverse engineer them. That doesn't surprise and so, me. And so NASA and the Navy had to be very, very quick on knowing where the the knowing where that space refuge was going to fall, uh, and and really and and picking it up and reacquiring it. Uh, so that it would be it would be it would be maintained as property of the U.S. government because those were state secrets, and the last thing they wanted was for some other country, some other navy, to you know to pick them up. And that makes sense, you know. And we're sitting here talking about reliability and reusability, and you had mentioned this the Russian program of the Soyuz and how long around it's been. But you want to talk about reliability? Oh yeah, they haven't changed that really much of that design, other than update the internals to be more modern. It's still the same thing they've been flying for almost fifty plus years. Yeah, almost yeah. six years, and and rightfully so. I mean, you know, it's kind of one of those if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And and this is this is the genius of Russian pragmatism uh, when it comes to their programs like that. They they don't do a lot in the way of technological innovation, making things shiny and new. But uh, it's it's kind of a it's a joke, but it's not a joke because it's 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 legit. You know, the United States government probably spent, and I, I say probably they, but they probably actually did this. They put millions and millions and millions of dollars into research and development to create a canister that could withstand the, the differential pressures of, of being in space and being within an atmosphere uh, and, uh, you know, to, to hold ink. And then a, a tip that would allow that, that they engineered that would allow for the free flow of ink, but would also stop it when pressure stopped being applied. Um, you know, they, they, they had to create this entire process of making a perfect pen that would work in space. And Russians just use fucking pencils because they realize how stupid that endeavor is. Like, yeah. it's super cool. It's yeah. like, oh man, space and pen. It's but it's really like, bro, weird. I got a pencil. Yeah, you can go buy a space pen, by the way. They do market space pens. I think that's. I think it's just the whole reason is because they can market it that way, that it's a pen that could work in space. Which I is mean, hilarious because it's like, what's, what's the practical application for the average citizen who's never ever going to go into space? Yeah, I mean, exactly. And the Russians just used a pencil. It's like, you know, the Russians built a shuttle. Like, Americans, we built a shuttle. We used it for years. The Russians built it. They test flew it. Realized it wasn't practical for their needs. Kept using what they had. Oh, absolutely. Well, on top of that, too, the the Russian shuttle... Well, at the time, they thought, and this was in the 70s and the 80s, at the time, they thought that the space shuttle was a U.S. space plane that was going to be a space-based bomber. That's yep. what they thought, and that's why they built the. That's why they built the Baron the way they did because they were expecting to utilize it in a military capacity, not realizing that. I mean, one international law dictates that you can't use you know space for you can't militarize space and put weapons in space. Mind you, Russia is also the um, Russia is also the only country to break that rule, uh, in by by putting weapons in space, which they did. They put a cannon in space. Uh, so there's that, which is always an interesting factoid. You know, they, they thought that we were building a space plane that was going to be a space bomber. And so when they built the Baron, they didn't realize uh, that it wasn't going to suit their needs, like you said, because their need, or what they thought was their need, was to create a space combat platform. And then they built the thing, and they're like, oh, this is, this is for cargo. This is not for war. We don't want this anymore. But then again, at the same time, too, by the time the Baron was completed and they utilized it, uh, and, and they had more or less mastered it, um, and there was there was a bit of uh, engineering um, engineering espionage that went in there as well because after the U.S. found out that the Russians were buying up large amounts of um, again and legally 
because it was public knowledge because this was not a military project. The shuttle was not a military project, so it wasn't classified. We put it out there for the world to see as like, look, this is the vessel we're going to use to explore space. When the, when the U.S. government found out that the Russians were buying all of these plans that they were able to access, uh, they put out false information. Uh, and they, they put out uh, information for, like, faulty, uh, for faulty re-entry plates for the tiles for the shuttle. So that way, if the well, Russians I mean, were to attempt to make it, they would make a faulty craft. Say again? I mean, given what happened to Columbia, was it false information? Yeah, Columbia was a bit of a different story. Um, I know. That was, exactly. yeah, that was, it, that was a mess. The foam hit as it went up. And, you know, for what it is, you know, when you look at tragedies that happened in space, there weren't many of them either. So, I mean, I got that going I mean, you us. know, at the same time, at the same time, we and we say that. And, and to an extent, I believe it. And to an extent, I don't. In the sense that, like, I, I think that we have done everything that we can as a government. I say we as Americans. I think that we have done everything that we could and can to mitigate tragic accidents in space. But I think that there were a lot of initial issues aside from some of those like really tragic first ones and i forget which rocket it was i don't know if it was a gemini or if it was one of the one of the apollos um but there was one of one of the rocket missions uh just failed on launch like it was the uh the actual crew module caught fire uh, and they was, couldn't okay, get so that was actually so oh, that's that was apollo 1 but it was actually a ground test of the crew module and what it right, happened and, was they had over oxygenated the environment um, so they learned how to they actually from that learn to mix, but yeah, they couldn't open the door. Right. Yeah. And then it caught, and, and it caught fire on the inside and all of them were burned to a crisp. Correct. Including one of the first Americans in space. So we've, we've definitely had tragedies and I don't know if I believe that we haven't lost astronauts in space on some of these first missions, but then again, we are diplomatically speaking, um, we are a procedural country, whereas Russia is, say, a pragmatic country. And by that, I mean, by procedural, you know, if if we're fighting war and we know we have a target on this side of the on this side of the range and we need the target taken out, we go through X, Y, and Z checklist to make sure that we're absolutely in the right and that we're legally defensible if we need to actually pull that trigger and fire the round across range. Russians would say, uh, Russian government rather, would say, you know what? Just pull the fucking trigger. If the target dies, we'll deal with it later. You know, because the, because that's the pra- that's the pragmatism. They say, look, we just need the guy dead. We'll deal with the red tape after the fact. Um, and so we we approach our space program in very much the same way. And the way I, I and what I mean by that is specifically like the Apollo missions. It took until Apollo eleven to actually get on the moon. Every mission up until that point was testing the rocket, getting the rocket into orbit, uh, circumnavigating the globe through through uh, through an actual orbit. Then uh, getting it, uh, you know, part of the way to the moon, then getting it all the way to the moon, then going through an orbit around the moon, and then doing a couple more of those before they finally said, okay, we've gone in orbit around the moon enough times to where, like, we could finally land one on there. Yeah, and 11 and, wasn't like, even originally supposed to be the one scheduled to land on the moon first. It was actually 12. Right, you know, and so you think about that, and it's like, that's, that is the procedural step for it, because we take all of the incremental steps to avoid tragedy. And it's probably because if if we were to attempt to make said landing on the moon early uh, by following what we would consider to be a pragmatic process and we fucked it up, that would have taken the wind out of the metaphorical sails for the space program probably for the foreseeable future. You know, I wager. 
one thing I've also wondered when we're talking about space programs, and I guess we can talk more about this when we get talking about uh, talk about more about Apollo later in the month, is why the Russians never landed on the moon. Or so you think, comrade. Well, and that's it. Did they and never tell anybody? We don't know. I mean, honestly, I, I think they would have said something only because, and it's not, you know, it's it's not not an indictment on the Russian government, but more along the lines of like the Chinese landed on the far side of the moon, and the first thing they did was just not shut the fuck up about it. Like we landed on the moon. It's like we we did it too. And granted, not not a manned one, but like you know, they like not only did they land on the moon, they landed on the dark side of the moon. I don't know if you ask the guys in uh, space force, they're on the moon. They have a base set up to the same sea of tranquility, and we sabotaged it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So then, they, then they sabotaged ours. Um, and you're absolutely right on that. You know, but like it's, uh, but that, and that's that's more or less you know to my point where it's like, look, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of secret stuff going on in space. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get my tinfoil hat because I I have an armadillo helmet coming in, which is uh, much better for deflecting the CIA's mind reading rays. Uh, if you don't get that joke, get culture. Watch Duke's a Hazard movie. I, I think there's a lot going on in space that that we're not necessarily being told about. Then again, I don't want to say how much would you want to know, but I mean what what tactical strategic advantage do you really think having a lunar base at this moment in time would really give anybody? Oh, I mean, I'm not trying. I'm but... not trying to be short-sighted about it. Of course, any any position on higher ground is what you would want, including space. Um, but I mean, having having a lunar base does nobody any good because we're not in a position right now, at least not publicly, where we can do anything with it. And any any base would actually have to be on the far side of the moon. And it's not because not for you know, not not to be like, oh, we could see it from the ground. I mean, you know, but Hubble Hubble could point at the moon and look at it, uh, if they wanted to. Um, I'm sure a tactical advantage of having a base on the far side of the moon is it'd be a better launching point for a mission to Mars. I mean sure it would. Um absolutely it would. You know, but it'd be the, the, easier to launch a rocket from the moon with lots of with a lot less gravity to get like, a higher speed to get there a little faster. Right, because we're talking because journey from the Earth to Mars right now, leaving Earth's gravity, it's as fast as you're going, there's still drag. You can pick up speed, but you would be picking up speed infinitely faster if you launched from the moon. Right. And I and I also wonder, and I, I would have to ask a physicist about this, but I do I do wonder how negligible uh, the gravitational pull is, depending on the side of the moon that you launch from. I wager it's I, I wager it's nothing. The the difference is probably infinitesimal, but a physicist might tell me different. Um, but basically, in the sense that like the moon is tightly locked to the Earth, uh, and it, it it so if you're landing, if I'm sorry, if you're taking off from the side that's facing the Earth, uh, then I, I wager there may be some difference in gravitational pull. But again, I think that'd probably be negligible at best. Uh, so it's you know it's probably not that big of a deal. Uh, to launch from the light side of the moon vice to the far side of the moon. But at the same time, too, there's a real there's a real disadvantage to doing anything on the dark side of the moon, and that's, it's dark, you can't see. Well, yes, I mean, we do have artificial light sources, so there's that. I would we say do have they... artificial light sources, and of, course, you're, and, and of course, before anyone gets up my ass about it, yes, I know the Earth rotates, and I know that the moon rotates with it. You know, I, I, I understand all of those things. So I'm not a complete but, imbecile. But my thought would but, be that if you're on the farther side of the moon during a ro given rotation, that it would make sense that there was just a slightly less gravitational pull because you're not facing toward the celestial body like the Earth that you're already getting an effect from with the gravity. Sure, possibly. I mean, also, and, and, and I, the moon's gravity is what controls the tides anyway, which has always fascinated me. 
Right, and that's the thing. And so I wonder how negligible that really is. Um, you know, when we're talking about the the tidally locked position and everything else. But again, who can you know who can say I'm not I'm not an astronaut. Uh, well, you know, nor nor am I an engineer. I'm 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 just a dude. But uh, yeah, I mean, so these are you know these are all interesting considerations. But yeah, so I mean, as far as Russians going to the moon, they might not have even seen the the tactical advantage of it because again, it go, it falls back to that pragmatism. But also also one big thing to keep in mind too. Uh, they they have Russia has had their own space stations that ha were completely separate from the ISS. They had the Mir. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, yes, the Mir is. The they've, one. they've they've had a, they've had a couple. The Mir is just the most famous aside from the ISS. But the the Russians have had several space stations. Uh, you know, in in low Earth orbit, and so we you know so they they they've definitely put platforms and things up there. I think though one thing we always have to make a consideration for is the fall of the Soviet Union. And I think once the Soviet Union fell, a lot of the I don't want to say the need, but a lot of the desire to set up a specific Soviet foothold in what they would consider to be a tactical position was kind of negated. Um I mean for instance it was one and I forget what space station it was. Um uh, I, I think it starts with an S. Uh but Basically, uh, there was an astronaut who was actually in the Russian space station. He was by himself, mind you. He he stayed up there, and the other the other Russian cosmonauts came back. Um, mm -hmm. But he was in the space station by himself uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed, and so like he had to come back to Earth. So he when he left, the Soviet Union was intact, and then when he came back, he landed in what I believe is. I want to I want to say Kazakhstan, not Kyrgyzstan. Kyrgyzstan is something else. Uh, well, I mean, obviously it's something else, different country. But I think that there's some other military asset and air bases that were in Kyrgyzstan. But I believe he landed in Kazakhstan, and so he landed in what used to be the Soviet Union for him, and is now and it is now liberated Kazakhstan. And he had to, he came back to a completely different world. And it's even crazier when you realize like he went up wearing USSR CCCP um, uniforms and markings. And then he came back, and it's like, oh, the flag is different, the government's different, everything is different, and oh yeah. look, somebody took the wall down. Yeah. And so it's uh, and he, he and he went on to serve in subsequent missions. Absolutely, I'm sure he did. But yeah, no, that had to be a crazy that you're up there during the fall. That's just crazy. Yeah, that has to be an insane perspective. Like, like, can you just imagine? Like, especially, I mean, I don't even know if he got word. I would have to do a little more research on, on his story. But like, can you imagine if he like didn't even get word? Like because because communications were limited and of course the the Soviet Union was falling and so like who's gonna think in that exact moment man somebody should really tell us cosmonaut we have up the the government's taking a shit yeah right hey Yuri we need to tell you Gorbachev he's no longer there we're not communists Yuri right exactly Yuri exactly yeah, we'll, like, tell you, we'll, we'll tell him when he comes back yeah we'll we'll tell him when he gets here it's like someone have a bottle of vodka ready I think he's gonna need it fourth weekend came and went. And there was a launch. There was indeed another launch. It was the uh, Rocket Labs Electron launch. Picture, it didn't happen. And it didn't happen, so there are no pics, sadly enough. I mean, there's kind of a pic. It just froze before it cut signal back to mission control. Well, I mean, it was really a shame. So for those of you who didn't actually get a chance to watch it, um, basically, it, it actually launched beautifully. Um, you can actually see uh, in the late first stage boosting... Uh, where uh, right after it gets past Q, which is uh, its max velocity for a rocket, um, you start seeing some of the uh, the skin on the fairing come off a little bit. And as I, I rewatched the video, I was uh, I was getting more concerned. I was like, "Oh, is this where you know we have our failure?" Um, but I think it's around the 
if you if you pay attention to the telemetry information, it was around like I want to say the 34, the 38 minute mark, uh, that you start seeing the uh, the speed decrease, um, and then you know slowly you start to watch the altitude kind of bleed off. And and again, I didn't notice this in the immediacy of the moment when I was first watching it because I was just paying attention to the launch. Um, but in watching it again, I'm like, oh, I, I see where things are going wrong. And then um, it was during the uh, the battery swap, uh, the hot swap for the batteries, that everything just totally went wrong. Yep. And so they I... uh, they lost. I think it was something along something in the neighborhood of like, I think five satellites that were supposed to be going up on it. Uh, as well as a handful of experiments that were paid for. I mean, it's a, it's. I mean, thank goodness there's no loss of human life. It wasn't a manned mission, but I mean, wow, like it's still quite a bit when we're talking about the, uh, you know, the the financial burden that goes in there, especially since Rocket Labs has a, uh, they they've built a reputation for for quality um for quality rockets and for their uh their reliability. They've gone 12 launches so far without any kind of mishap whatsoever. Um, I don't know, without any kind of real failure, I should say. Um, and this one was uh, Unlucky 13. You know, and while watching this, there was something you had mentioned at some point in rocket telemetry and how, 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 how quickly it looked like the rockets moved now versus back then. And that's something oh, that yeah. actually I paid attention to on this thing and how quickly it was just up off into the, into the atmosphere. In a well, matter really of, I think, rocket. from launch, it's like in the minute, I think in the immediacy from it actually ignition to when it cut signal was only like 28 minutes. Yeah, I think it was something like that. What, what's, 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 brilliant about, what's brilliant about the Electron rocket and Rocket Lab stuff in general, they don't, they don't have huge rockets. Uh, they're, that's, that's really not their specialty. Their specialty is smaller rockets. You know, what you would normally see as, you know, what, what would typically be like a Falcon 9 you know, just like 30 meters tall or something crazy like that. You know, a Rocket Labs rocket, the Electron specifically, really is not a very large rocket at all. You know, it has a very it has a very small payload capacity. Uh, and by rocket standards, it's really, really tiny. It's just so interesting when you watch something that's so small, like it's, you know, it's, it's, it's really, really efficient. I don't, I don't want to insult it by comparing it to some kind of car, you know, but I would say it's kind of like, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's more or less like, you know, if, if a Saturn V is you know, uh, a Freightliner, a Freightliner 18-wheeler, you know, then the Electron is, you know, probably like a Honda Civic. I gotcha. But, you know, seeing this failure of this launch and where it was, me able to see the curvature, got me thinking about something. Is it Flat Earthers? Well, I mean, that right there proves that they're wrong. <laughs> but, aside from proving Flat Earthers wrong at every turn that we have, um, it also got me thinking about space junk. Oh yeah! Oh my goodness! And, um, How much shit is just floating around in our atmosphere, in 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 orbit around the planet, just floating there that we've put up? How many tons of bullshit do we have just floating in space? Absolutely. And and you and I discussed it earlier. We were talking about uh you know today's launch, which was scrubbed uh, at the time of this recording. There was supposed to be a SpaceX launch today at Cape Canaveral, where they were going to be sending up the next uh, cluster of the uh, Starlink constellation satellites. And we got into the discussion of, uh, you know, the fact that we just have so much space junk. Um, and, and the repercussions, really, of Starlink. Um, because yeah, it's really it's ambitious. Actually, to, to bring it up, actually, why don't we talk a little bit about that? Because I don't think we've actually talked about Starlink ever on the podcast. Because we've never really gotten, had as much time to talk about space or as much effort put into space. Sure. Um, I mean, so, I mean, for those, of, for those of our listeners who aren't aware of what Starlink is supposed to be, Starlink is supposed to be, um, when everything is finally completed, a low-cost 
internet uh, provided by a constellation of satellites that SpaceX is going to be launching into uh, low Earth orbit. And by constellation of satellites, I quite literally mean it's going to be a chain of satellites that are going to create uh, a ring around the planet. So, so long as a Starlink satellite is passing overhead, uh, we here on the ground, with, of course, with the installation of a special dish uh, or plate that you're going to have on your home or on your vehicle, should be able to pick up um, Internet. And the, the beauty of it is going to be that uh, people who otherwise could not afford Internet, and this is geared towards you know, people who live in um, impoverished and or rural areas of, you know, uh, Amer of the greater American continents, both north and south, Africa, Asia, just it's supposed to be a global link uh, to provide internet to people who otherwise really can't get it by conventional means. And I think it's a really noble and ambitious cause, but then we bring up the issue, as we were discussing, of space junk, uh, adding more space junk up there, and then the, the case for astronomers, both amateur and professional, and the fact that it's, it's going to pollute the night sky further with more light pollution than we already have. And there was uh, actually on YouTube, one amateur astronomer in Wales, he has an app that tracks satellites and it told him when Starlink satellites are going to be coming overhead. Not to say that it ruined his view, but they do look very much like stars. They are very noticeable. There's a reflection of the light from the sun. Is not, you know, it, it is not conducive to uh, being an astronomer. No, I've actually used some of those satellite finding apps. Some I've actually gone out and a lot of actually really back when I lived in the desert and was out in the wilderness more, I'd use those apps to try to track them when I looked at the sky because yeah, you don't want to be sitting there trying to spot constellations and looking at, you know, looking at oblivion essentially. And all of a sudden here comes the network satellite just scooting along at its own pace through your view. Absolutely. But, you know, how much space truck really is up there is really what I want to know and what what constitutes when a satellite becomes actual junk because you know there's a bunch of dormant satellites up there there's debris up there from the rockets when they separate in orbit sure, absolutely um so i mean as far as space junk it's uh, the the closest estimate that i've seen is that we've got i think roughly five thousand ish uh five to seven thousand satellites that are currently active that are up there and that's that's just things that are active up there now as far as space junk most space junk is under 10 centimeters uh and then and so we we don't really have much ability to track things under 10 centimeters uh and but there there are programs and processes in place for us to track things that are greater than 10 centimeters specifically because when you consider say like the iss um being up there in, in you know earth's orbit and moving it uh, and i'm 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 either exaggerating or not doing it just by the way my calculation is, is inaccurate but let's say it's twenty four thousand miles an hour you know is is the rate of uh, at which these things are moving up in low earth orbit or um you know in a geosynchronous orbit and mm -hmm. it's all colliding so i mean imagine it's a paint ship and and they've they've done the math on this more or less but it's basically if you were an astronaut on a spacewalk and a paint ship from a 1970s satellite uh, came whizzing past you at 24,000 miles an hour, the damn thing would go right through you. Like, it would go through you, it would go through your spacesuit, like, you'd be dead. You, you'd, your spacesuit would depressurize, and you'd be bleeding out into the vacuum of space. That's, and that's just kind of it. And, and it's a, so there's a real danger to it. Um, you know, they've got a Whipple shielding on the ISS, which is... Um, it's it's kind of like a two-stage armor plating. It's a, it's it has an external hull and an internal hull. So the Whipple plating is basically those paint chips that actually do penetrate the external hull. Upon penetrating the external hull, they break up into uh, micro shards, and then the secondary hull stops them because that first plating uh, broke down the velocity, kind of like breaking the surface tension of water. Gotcha. Um, okay. 
And so, but yeah, but it is a huge problem. You know, we've even attempted, uh, and other governments, I mean, most recently India, India really caught a bunch of crap for this recently because we as an international community have long since um, stopped or tried our best to stop blowing up satellites with rockets in orbit because we realize now the dangers of more space junk that gets created. Uh, but India most recently, I think as a means of testing an intercontinental ballistic missile or some kind of rocket because they wanted to prove that they could, you know, they decided they were going to blow up one of their old satellites. And so like, much, much to the chagrin of the, of the rest of the world, uh, they, they blew up one of their satellites, which created a massive amount of excess debris in orbit. <laughs> Um, and so that's, that's, it's, uh, it's, it's really a bigger issue than people are talking about right now, but yeah, it's, it's huge. Um, there are different things in place countries and companies are discussing as a means of trying to recover a lot of these old satellites before they become a bigger issue. Uh, because the more stuff that's up there, uh, the worse it's going to get. And it, it is only a matter of time and it's not if it's when it's going to be a matter of time where we, we fear that there's going to be this massive domino effect where, one of our larger satellites is going to collide with another larger satellite and it's going to break up into massive, massive chunks and it's going to start a chain reaction where those massive chunks smash into another satellite and to another and to another and we'll take down our entire global communications network, you know, in, in a matter of hours. I mean, so that then poses the question as well of how do you clean up space junk? Decommissioning satellites and bringing them down is one thing by maybe launching and, you know, pushing them back into the gravitational pull. But with a lot of the smaller pieces, there's not much we can do about them unless we make, you know, some kind of space vacuum that can attach and turn from battleship into a maid and suck up all the debris. Yeah, they've uh, there, there's a couple of interesting theories being floated around right now. Um, one of them is to uh, launch some kind of vehicle um, or some kind of, like, skimmer off of a satellites that are already existing. Uh, another one's launching a vehicle that has... Uh, the capability to use some kind of uh, net, and it would be a one-time use launch vehicle that would basically go up. It would, you know, with a specific intention of bringing down one of the larger satellites. Uh, it would use a net to slow the satellite down in orbit and then bring it back down to Earth with, hopefully, with the intention of it breaking up in Earth, uh, you know, in Earth's atmosphere on reentry, but then collecting whatever, uh, you know, comes down after the fact. There's another option of putting satellites up there uh, with lasers with the hope of ablating, uh, which is basically breaking down, uh, of ablating uh, the bits and pieces of broken satellites that are up there and, and being able to track some of that smaller debris. You know, and it sounds more like science fiction than fact, but, I mean, it's it's a possibility. It's just a very expensive one. And, you know, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, governments don't really like dealing in uh, expensive things. Um, you know, so if, if you were ever wondering... Uh, you know, about the efficacy or the expense of the space program overall. Just remember, the space shuttle was the best thing that we could get for the cheapest price that the government was willing to pay. Fact. So I guess that, that with that being the fact, though, that the government's the cheapest price, so what about the option of them just leaving shit up there and hoping that it eventually kind of th orbit decays? I mean, that's kind of what we've been doing for the past couple decades, from what I can tell. So what you're saying is, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> and if it is broke, just leave it up there. Well, that's what they're doing. I mean, look, we spend so much money just, you know, we send the hull up there and then discover, oh shit, we wrote it the wrong description. We have to send up another mission to give it new glasses. And I'm really paraphrasing exactly what happened with the Hubble launch in the, in the mission, but essentially it boils down to they wrote the wrong prescription and needed new glasses. And there's more nuance to it. However, you know, if we're willing to do that, we can at least figure out how to clean up some of our shit out of space, right? I mean, the Russians don't just leave their old space stations up there. They 
came back down to Earth. Yeah, they, they tend to deorbit their stuff. Spectacularly than others. Well, I mean, and again, I'm not. This is this is in no way, uh, you know, this is no way an endorsement of of the the Russian model overall because we we all know that you know as far as governments go, uh, that the Soviets certainly didn't get it right on a lot of things. Gulags, <laughs> gulags. Sorry. Um. So, but for the most part, you know, the Soviet space program, aside from a space race and and the attempt to militarize space, especially with them being the only country that's put an actual weapon up there, with with the you know the the mission per se russia has had while not as flamboyant of a space program as ours they've had a more continuous space program uh because even you know even throughout the time of the shuttle they were using the soyuz before the shuttle they were using the soyuz after the shuttle they were still using the soyuz but yeah i mean so you know the but the, that's the thing about the you know the the russians is that as far as like their model is concerned you know they they utilize the soyuz um you know and they they don't necessarily need to reinvent the wheel. They've they've kind of got something that works, and they use it. Uh, and while again, while while not uh, you know as innovative as as our space program is, theirs tends to have been more reliable. And and they've always found a way to you know. Uh, and of course, admittedly, because we pay to put astronauts on the Soyuz, but they continue to find reasons to put the Soyuz up into space. Well, as we've said at some point before. And the Russians are also one of very much the mentality, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. What's the best option? They, don't, they didn't spend nearly as much, and it shows. But they did get something reliable. They've been using the same capsule technologies for, for almost 60 years. Sure, and it's not even to say that their stuff is better, because of course, I mean, if you, look, if you gave me the option between a Soyuz capsule or, you know, a, a crew dragon... Uh, yeah, I'm taking well, the Crew Dragon. Yeah, like that's... That, that's not fair comparison by the fact that the Crew Dragon technically is a commercial endeavor, not a private endeavor. Oh, it's not technically it is. It's totally a commercial no, endeavor. You know, so if we want to really compare, I would still probably take a space shuttle flight over the Soyuz. I would take a space shuttle flight, but that's only because uh, I think it's cooler. <laughs> stupid yeah, of mean, me. It's totally stupid, is, totally it's stupid of me, but it's cool. It's cooler. It's a space glider. There's a space glider. I mean, look, it's awesome. I mean, even even like even as a kid, you know, when you don't actually know what they're doing. Like I when I when I first found out as a kid when I was at Kennedy Space Center, it's like you know, my mom was like, "Oh yeah, this the shuttle puts satellites in space," and I'm like, "That's boring," but the shuttle looks cool. You yeah. know, as a kid, I only cared about it launching, landing. I didn't care about any of the actual space stuff as a kid until later. That's true. Like, I That's thought it was cool true. that they could go out in space and move around and float, but they can't. They're up there doing science, and I was like, "That's boring." Where are the lasers? Then, so then, then you learn later the lasers are science. You're like, "Wow, wow, that's a boring laser." <laughs> are they fighting the Russians? Because I mean, then again, look what we grew up. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it was it was the '90s. Well, I don't know. I think I think by the time we I think by the time we were kids, the I mean, the, the Cold War was over by the time we were we were old enough yes, to articulate but, those kinds of things. I mean, yes, but but the era we grew up in, it was still very much a worry for a lot of the older generation, especially of the generation that grew up invested in the space race as an adult. But they're still paranoid of the Russians today too. So I mean, we've come full circle. <laughs> Uh, I mean, not not to get political, but I mean that they're uh, apparently, you know, ba- based on the politics of the past couple of years, and even some of the uh, the the revelations or the intel reports that have come in, it seems like we've had plenty of reason to be paranoid about the Russians still. So, 
So the other bit of space news I saw is that there's a black hole that they're calling is the fastest growing. It devours, on average, something of one star every day. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Uh, like, it's 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 terrifying, but at the same time, it's it's also well. The the great thing about space, whenever we discuss like you know the the things that terrify us, most of the things that terrify us about space are are essentially of no consequence to us. So, for instance. Giant meteor. The giant meteor hits us, and it's actually of a substantial size where we're concerned it's going to do damage to us. More likely than not, depending on the size of it, if you fall within its path, you're not going to notice anyways. You're not going to feel a fucking thing. You know, we're afraid of, like, solar flares. If a solar flare that's big enough to, like, actually come across three planets and, like, hit Earth and engulf Earth, if, if a solar flare does it, don't worry about it. It's going to demagnetize the planet. It's going to completely strip our atmosphere, and you're going to be cooked within an instant. So I promise you won't feel a fucking thing. It'll be cool. Uh, black black holes. Hole fucking huge. Dude, this thing's, what is it here? Like, I'm reading an article about it, and its mass is about 8,000 times bigger than the black hole at the center of the Milky Way galaxy. Essentially, for our galaxy, the black hole to be the size of this, it would have to swallow two-thirds of all of the stars in our galaxy to be that size. Like, Ew. holy fuck, this thing's huge. It's thick with two Cs. That girl thick. Hell yeah. But, you know, like, honestly, things like this, black holes are mystifyingly ter- They're terrifying and they're mystifying because it's something that even light can't escape of. And light is the fastest traveling thing. Uh, it, it is the fastest traveling thing in our universe, but I will I will also say this: when you realize, and this this is gonna this this might be a bit of a charge statement, depending on who it is I'm talking to, whether you're a layman or a professional. But when you when you realize the actual speed of light, you realize it's actually abhorrently slow. Um, and when we, when we consider that light is the fastest moving thing in our known physical universe, you realize that it's abhorrently slow. Uh, and for what 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 I mean by that is. Uh, to get through one astronomical unit from here to the sun, which I believe is around 93 million miles, to go 93 million miles, it takes the speed of light eight minutes. So the light of the sun that you see every day is eight minutes old. So cons- consider that. This is what we consider to be this astronomical thing where if you were able to surpass it somehow, we believe it would bend the fabric of space and time uh, and, and create forms of instantaneous travel. Now... Star Trek does a good job of, of bringing this up because it talks about, you know, warp speed. Even even at warp speed, it would still take you hours, days, weeks to get across sections of the galaxy. So that goes to show you, based on the amount of space and distance there is to cover, how abhorrently slow light itself actually is. Uh, I, I think, what is the... Um, I'm trying to remember exactly what the delay between... Jupiter and us is I think it's like somewhere along it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 minutes I think so yeah and so like again it's it's a 20 minute delay from the speed of light from Jupiter to us and so again when you and not to say that that's a small distance to cover but when you consider the distance of you know are the 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 size of our solar system as it exists in space in comparison to the rest of the galaxy like our solar system as a whole is a dot in the galaxy and so you talk about the speed of light, and you're like, wow, that's really damn slow. You're talking about the speed of light makes you realize that the stars we see, everything we see in the sky right now, is so old that everything we're looking at could be gone. Oh, absolutely. And uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson does a really good job of, uh, of, of breaking it down where he says that. Now, a bit of a thought experiment before I continue with the explanation, but when, when you are looking through a telescope, which is essentially a big light bucket with a visor attached, or, or a lens, rather, um, when you look through a telescope and you are, you are collecting the light, you are seeing light 
that, as you well know, if depending on the distance, if it's you know, if the star is a hundred light years away, yeah, it's either you minute, are hours, days, eons, millennia old. Right. So you're looking at hundred year old light. So you're essentially looking a hundred years into the past. Now, the the act of trying to witness the universe, an ever-expanding universe at that, the act of doing that is the equivalent of putting, and this is Neil deGrasse Tyson's quote, uh, or paraphrase on my end, rather, uh, the act of doing that is the same as sticking your hand into couch cushions to get a coin, and by digging deeper to get the coin, the coin falls deeper into the couch cushions because your hand is separating the cushions further. And that's kind of the same thing that you deal with when you're looking through a telescope trying to, like, observe the universe as it continues to expand. Because the universe is expanding at a rate that is faster than the speed of light. And so we are attempting to look at light that is coming to us at the speed of light as it flees from us faster than the speed of light. That's a mind-blower. It is, but it's crazy. Just the, just the act of attempting to witness the universe... It, it, it forces us to lose more. And it's even crazier when we talk about um, you know, this particular thing. Because the universe is, is constantly expanding, you find that galaxies within the local group are getting closer together, while the universe itself is getting farther and farther apart. Now, this is, this is the fun part. So, uh, eventually... The galaxy that you live in, or the group of galaxies, the local group, is is going to essentially be the equivalent of the observable universe, because all of the other groups are moving away from each other at the rate of the expansion of the universe, or something close to the rate of the expansion of the universe. And so, we currently are able to see the observable universe as we understand it exists for you know what what is what is. 13.8 billion year old light. We are able to currently observe the observable universe of 13.8 billion year old light. But in another billion years or so, or another 500 million years, whatever you want to suggest it is, we will not be able to see any of that. The observable universe will be no bigger than the local group. And mm -hmm. it will be, you will basically be able to articulate, and it'll be, it, it'll be essentially, I don't even want to say provable, but the limits of the observable universe will end with a local group. And so it, it will be as if the, the observable universe as we understand it now never existed at all within our perception. So like people who live, if, if we are, you know, if, if our species, or rather, if the planet is unfortunate enough for our species to live another 500 million years, um, if that happens... Uh, people may very well argue that the observable universe, as we have suggested it exists, never existed at all. Because with their modern technology, no matter how good it is, they will not be able to see out beyond the, uh, beyond the precipice of the local group. And so there will be no, aside from what we've recorded, there will be no definitive proof at all that the observable universes that exist now ever existed. Crazy shit. Yes, that is crazy shit. I mean, science itself, it's just scary. It's crazy. I mean... Just all of it. I, I don't even know where to begin with um with science anymore. I mean things like that, the black holes, you know, seeing you know the insides of cores to planets and just seeing how far it's come just lately to how much further we're able to see into into space now is mind blowing. Oh absolutely. Yeah, and, and you know the but the thing about science, you know, and, and this is where uh, I'm sure I'm going to step on somebody's toes here, but the difference between you know science and and religion, uh, for instance, is that 
religion likes to sit around on the pedestal of confidence and say, I have all the answers. You know, I have the answers to the mysteries you seek. Uh, and more often than not, they tend to be wrong, uh, regardless of what it is you believe, uh, you know, because no, no, amount of, no amount of thoughts and prayers cure the bubonic plague. Uh, and, and we... And and we've and we've tried that experiment. Look at the twelve hundreds. Like, no, no amount of thoughts and prayers cure the bubonic plague. Period. Uh, and they tried a lot of it. So there's that. Uh, science, though, for all of the answers that science has, science is not afraid to look at what we have and say, I don't know. But what science does have the maturity to do is they say, I don't know. Let me go into the lab and I'm going to try to find out. Uh, you know, and that's that. That's more. That's more than anyone who who is uh, an an avid proponent of religion can say, because they don't do that. They don't say, "I am going to attempt to discover." They 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 assume that they just know. Well, and that even you can look back even further with that. I mean, that's always and the big argument was always science versus religion, and really the biggest proponents are to see that would be back even with science in its infancy, discovering the planets with Galileo and the Catholic Church as an example. And and uh, again, I'm not knocking religion for its historical part in in you know um, in advancing human civilization because the simple fact of the matter is this. And I've I've and I, I've said this to you know other historians. I've said this to uh, scientists and and avid atheists who like to just knock religion. Religion is humanity's first experiment with higher thought. It is humanity's first attempt to look up and suggest that there is something bigger than humanity and and the threshold of our own existence and religion uh to an extent gave way and gave inspiration to the discovery of science because some of the best scientists of the day of of certain times were religious scholars the uh the islamic scientists the islamic mathematicians did so because they 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 became so knowledgeable because they desired to discover the secrets of God's creation. And so they began to study it, or what they perceived as God's creation for, for those of you who aren't of, the, of that perception, or persuasion, rather. Um, the same thing with the, uh, the Christian monks in the abbeys. You know, the, the first, uh, you know, the, the, some of the first telescopes, some of the first large telescopes, some of the first biologists, you know, uh, the brewers, the people who invented, who invented what we have as a modern incarnation yeah. of beer, not counting the ancient Egyptians who, who truly invented oh, beer. No, but... Absolutely. A lot of the monasteries back then were, mo were, were known for their beer. Yeah, like the, Bel the Belgian abbeys specifically. That's why you have Belgian-style beer and, and abbey ales, because the, those were things that were created within monasteries and churches. And those people were, they were biologists, they were chemists. Um, and it's you know it's it's kind of like in Game of Thrones where the maesters are the ones who hold all the knowledge. Well, of course, Game of Thrones is supposed to be a, a fictitious representation of what we see uh, within human history, and so that is partially accurate. The the churches did have books of of knowledge; they had libraries of knowledge, and more often than not, you could find that monasteries were the places that you would go to learn facts and learn science, because there, there were there were no universities as we understand them uh, currently. Uh, or if there were, there were very few of them. And so you did have to go to monasteries to get certain books and to get certain teaching. Um, and so that, that's a, and so again, credit to religion where, where it's due. Absolutely. Uh, but, and I forget which celebrity said it, but it was a really, really solid point. Um, if, if I, and I would never, I'll premise this with, I would never, uh, I would never even think to, but if I were to take every religious book currently in existence and I were to set them ablaze, 
uh, all of them. So every every book that ever mentioned Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad, uh, any Jewish teaching, what have you. If I were to burn every single religious text uh, within a couple of generations, you would the, the all of those stories would completely disappear from the face of the earth. Humanity would never, ever, ever rediscover Jesus. Humanity would never, ever, ever rediscover Buddha or Elijah or Muhammad or any of those things. Ever. Not ever. Because the, that, that time has gone and passed. Now, if I were to burn every single mathematical and scientific teaching, every scientific note uh, ever, every, every particle, physics, paper, you know, uh, Newton's Principia, like all of it, if I were just to burn it all, Eventually, in 10,000 years or so, you know, prov provided we start from the bottom, humanity would rediscover math and science because those are the constant rules that are the building blocks for the reality in which we live. Yes. And so, not to say that there's a superiority to it, but there's a consistency to it that you do not get from religion. We got really deep. All we're yeah, getting real deep really, on the pod thing. Really deep thing this time. Holy shit. We're but no, that's we're, absolutely we're, something you could look at and actually is true because there's a lot of religious teachings and books that were lost that we have absolutely no knowledge of. We just know they existed at some point. And the same thing right. can be said. And that's, you know, roughly 2,000 years of Christianity of religion, for example, in the last books of the Bible, so to speak. You know? Oh, sure. Not, not just the Bible, but you've also got the, uh, you have the, the lost books uh, that the Dead Sea Scrolls don't even absolutely. complete. No, absolutely. What, those things are thousands. Those are older than most of the books of the Bible are. Right, and what's great about the Dead Sea Scrolls, by the way, is that the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, they they give credence to certain books that we thought existed or that we had portions of, and then they pull the Dead Sea Scrolls out, and, and these are these are things that were part of the Apocrypha or the Septuagint, which are the books that were removed, um, you know, by by the Church, uh, and then you find that the Dead Sea Scrolls have. Uh, chunks of them in there, and you're like, okay, so these these are legit. Um, so that's and that's and that's cool, you know. But at the same time, like we we didn't really get much of an extra picture from that, you know. The Book of Giants still lost. Chunks of the Book of Enoch still lost. Um, you know, and and again, it's stuff that we're never going to get again. Yeah, so let's go talking from your religion to Rick and Morty, huh? Let's go from religious ramblings to it, shall we? Because Rick and Morty is definitely the antithesis to everything we've just discussed. Absolutely. And yes, I finally got around to finishing part two of season four. So what I'd like to do is just talk to you as a whole, because I haven't actually really talked to you much at all about Rick and Morty in general. It's something you and I both love, but we've never really gotten to talk about in all these years that we've known each other. Uh, I mean, so yeah, Rick and, Rick and Morty was good, especially um, if, we're, if we're just going to be discussing this, uh, this last season. Um, you know, I think that uh, it, first off, it was a great season. Uh, they're all good seasons. Uh, I really, really enjoyed uh, the speaking of space because we've been talking about space. I love the uh, the quip that <laughs> that they make when they're uh, they're in space and uh, Morty gets bitten by the space snake or the snake astronaut, and <laughs> Morty goes, "Rick, there's snakes in space," and, and Rick goes, "Everything is literally in fucking space, Morty." It's absolutely true. Literally everything is in space. So I, I like thought that the was whole awesome. Moral of that episode at the end is to stay in the fucking car. Stay in the buddy. fucking car. <laughs> when, stay in the fucking car. When they tell you to stay in the fucking car, bro. I mean, um, the vat of acid. All right, so standouts from this, the vat of acid episode from part two is probably one of my favorite episodes. 
I absolutely love the Vat of Acid episode. Um, it's it's even better when it's it's made better when you uh see basically the the whole process that Morty goes through. Because of course, you know, aside from uh, aside from Jessica, you know, and his his obsession, his obsessive infatuation with Jessica. Um, one thing that I thought was great was to see him finally find love through all of that trial and tribulation. You know, uh, only to lose it because of the reset button. Yeah, and then he he tries to go back and get the relationship, and he goes back to it, and she just runs away. So he goes to make. She maces him. I I like in the end that it shows you how shitty Rick really is too, because it becomes it doesn't set reset the timeline. It teleports Morty to an alternate dimension and kills the native Morty. Yes. Yeah, that was that was awesome, and so, then uh, he had to he had to he had to deal with all of the uh, aggregate, the the uh, the all of the aggregate karmic backlash of all of the times he's reset. Yep, and then how does he get out of it? Rick has him jump in a vat of acid. That's right, because you never doubt the vat of acid, Morty. And then I do like I really do like how the policeman at the end thinks he's invincible to acid, so he lowers himself in, <laughs> jumps in the acid. But see, you know what I you know what I actually love about that though? This shows just a slight amount of compassion on Rick's side and it's not something that's just overtly obvious at the moment when you know when when the actual uh when the actual occurrence happens. But imagine this. Morty did not because because it killed the native Morty and then just made him go to a different dimension. It didn't actually remove the girl that he fell in love with and survived with through all of that. She was still alive, and, and it shows, of course, because she shows up at the Vat of Acid, but you don't know which one of those incarnations it's supposed to be. One. Right. Um, you know, but, so there's that. But at the same time, it means that, like, that girl still exists. Like, he did not reset to a different time and, like, not have her. Like, so, in theory, which I'm sure Harmon and Royland will never go back to this, but in theory... Morty could figure out which dimension that was and go back to her. I mean, in theory, yes, but he won't. It won't happen. It won't. But but it's nice to know that the window's open. Like it's 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 nice to know that that some in some dimension somewhere, some cute girl actually likes Morty. Right. It's nice to know in some direction, or in some dimension rather, Morty can get ahead. Essentially, you know, I mean, it, it only takes a plane crash and like you're, you know, frostbite and your fucking fingers falling off and shit. But yeah, yeah, pretty much. I think the episode as well with Morty getting a dragon was pretty good. Oh my god, that was awesome! I fucking <laughs> Morty getting a dragon. I loved it because uh, it's it's even better because the dragon hates Morty. Slut dragons. So good, especially because like Rick is the the most dismissive one. He's like, "Fuck the dragons," and like the dragon's all about it. God, was awesome. a talking cat, and you don't ask him why he talk. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I, I want to touch on the finale real quick because um, we discussed it, and everyone like everyone's you know coming at it from the perspective of like, oh well, you know Rick doesn't know because Rick did his own mind blower, and so he turned his back and didn't see the uh, you know the machine basically playing three card Barney with the uh, with the the holding tanks. Now, remember. Uh, Roland and Harmond are, are masters at their craft, uh, and we know for a fact, because we've seen it, that 
they can and have done first-person point of view. Um, so, when we see the mind blow where Rick pulls the tape uh, off of the holding tanks and then has the machine mix them up and he turns his back, we see it from strictly a third-person perspective, which leads me to believe that it is possible that Rick was watching the mind blower from a third-person perspective as opposed to from a first-person perspective. Now, so what you're saying is Rick knows. I think he very well may know, and this is my reasoning to why. Because if he's looking at it from the third-person perspective, this man is a super genius. He does, he does trig, calc, and quantum physics calculations in his head all simultaneously, because he can. You mean to tell me that from a third-person perspective, he can't watch the tape getting pulled off and then just kind of count? Like, he goes, okay... That's the actual Beth, that's the clone Beth, and just count the rotations. And, I, I, you know, it also didn't show him erasing any of the security footage, which we know he has. We know he has a fuck ton of, of security uh, protocols in place, not only for his own person, but specifically for his garage lab. Oh, absolutely. We've seen it throughout multiple episodes that he has a bunch of security. So he has to have a feed somewhere that tells him, you know, what is what. Which 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 holding tank is which holding tank, and and so he could he could have counted the rotations, he could have seen it from one of multiple security feeds. We don't show him erasing everything, um, you know. We only see him erasing his mind with the mind blower, uh, and turning his back, and that's it, you know. And granted, like he's still a piece of shit father because now he has to, you know, now he he knows what he's done, um, and and I always hate seeing Rick lose because I more than and it's not just because Rick lost I can take Rick losing I just can't stand when Jerry fucking wins Jerry fucking won and that pisses me off I can't like I really I just, I just can't stand when Jerry wins ever so and that's a, that, that's a bad way to end a season because now we're going to wait like another year and a half for season 6 although season 5 we're only on season 5 because this was season 4 you're right season 5 I'm sorry yeah so it's it's all just a big mess but you know, Fuck to talk Harry. more on Rick and Morty because, because we're here, we might as well talk more because it's the sci-fi summer, right? Rick and Morty as a sci-fi show's genius with the technology. I mean, this is a man we're talking about who built whose car battery is powered by a micro universe that has another micro universe powering a battery inside of it. Well, one, real quick on the car, there's two things I want to point out about the car. Uh, actually, three things. One, uh, the dome has a crack in it perpetually. Which is like yeah. really crazy because you're like, there's a fucking, you're, you're flying around in the vacuum of space and there's a crack in your dome near perpetually. One. Two, his headlights are flashlights, the regular conventional flashlights that are taped on with masking tape. So that's also a weird thing. Three, this is a man who understands chemical and mechanical physics so well, uh, as well as particle physics. And so his engines are literally trash cans. He figured that of all the metals that he could utilize and all of the shapes he could utilize, that the trash cans from the family house are, are, uh, are best suited to withstand the heat and pressure that comes from the kinds of engines that he's using, which I can only imagine are some kind of ion engine. Um, but even, again, even ion engine technology is probably too primitive for Rick um, with that. But that's also, and that's with the fact that, like, all of his technology that he has in his lab is infinitely better than most things that he carries on his person, uh, with the exception of some of the suits and like personal gadgets for, like force fields and stuff that he has in his belt and whatnot. But it's even crazier when you consider the fact that like the man's car, like yeah, you pop it and it's like it's universe inside of universes inside of universes for the battery. Um, 
But like the car, the car in general, aside from the fact that it's a really compact spaceship that can do FTL travel, the car's a piece of shit compared to like every absolutely. other thing that he carries. No, the car absolutely is a piece of shit compared to everything else that Rick carries. I mean, Rick, Rick has a damn fucking portal gun in his pocket at any given time. In his car, and that's is another a thing too. Like, shit. and I do, I really do love the adventures in space. I do, but I also wonder, and maybe it's more of a contingency. So where like they can't always use the portal gun, maybe it's easier to use the car sometimes, or it's you know in case the portal gun breaks on one of their misadventures, what would happen? So they can't depend on it constantly. I wager that most of Rick's issues could be solved by just using the portal gun to get around, because I imagine that the portal gun is not just for going from universe to universe, from dimension to dimension. The portal gun is used from going to place to place, and so like he could stay within this dimension and calibrate it and just say, "I'm going to the grocery store." Portal walk in. Go, it, it spits him out at the grocery store, gets whatever the fuck he needs, walks back to the portal, comes back out into the living room. They And I believe they've shown that once or twice where he creates the portal and reaches through it and pulls shit out. So, like, I mean, it's doable, and so I wonder why not. Uh, and and I, we, I think we've seen a decrease in uh, portal gun usage um, since the... Uh, since I don't want to say since Season 3, but I think starting in Season 3, you saw a big decrease in portal gun usage. No, we haven't seen as much Portal Gun this this season at all. Um, it definitely has decreased. Instead, we've seen a lot more travel in the car. As a whole, the sci-fi Rick and Morty, I like how what they what they do with the series is they always do parody popular sci-fi things. I mean, you've seen parodies of Akira, which is one of the greatest animated sci-fi films of all time. That was um, hilarious. We've seen call-outs to Cylons. We've seen call-outs to Cthulhu. We've seen references to machete we've seen references to things that aren't sci-fi we've seen things that are and it's really great to see how rick and morty blends it all together and if we're really going to talk about rick and morty we do need to take a moment to mention fascist fascist uh universes and then you find oh yeah it'd be wasp rick in the season four you know it's crazy too portal gun episode that is a portal gun episode and that is probably that is absolutely a portal gun episode episode. you see in in season four that's probably the biggest use of the portal gun the whole time is rick hopping through dimensions through all of those fascist ones until he gets to the wasp dimension where he's like, uh, hail wasp Hitler. He's like, what the fuck? fuck? But, hey man, but I guess what, you've been through a lot. We don't do that here. Yeah, I um it's crazy too because it's such a it's such a bit of a it's such a weird disconnect because, you know, we got the beginning of season four like well over six months ago. Um the la- the last season of episode four, the I'm sorry, the last wow. <laughs> the last episode of season four that we got was before this season came out was well over six months ago. Yes, yeah, so um, we covered it on a previous incarnation of this podcast. Right, and so the my point being is like we've had this separation because we got half seasons this time around. Um, so, and so uh, I gotta ask, what's your thought on that? So a lot of shows have gone to this where you have a part one and part two of the season. Doctor Who annoys for years. Um, it annoys the shit out of me. I would, I would, I would rather have, uh, I would rather have a season of ten episodes, personally. Um, but that also being said, uh, I'm I am not the one who dictates the production tempo of Harmon and Royland. Um, and if they believe, they are no procrastinators, and that's fine. If they, but if they also believe, because of course, when you when you uh, when you force art, you get shit art. Uh, time timelines are truly an enemy of of the artistic process. They, I, I, and I, I, I firmly believe that. Uh, de- deadlines really fuck it up. Well, and they both have side projects. Have you seen Solar Opposites on Hulu yet? No, I have not. Although I want to, I, I heard it's very, very good. I've heard that if, very, if you like I, Rick and Morty, it's great. I but Harmon's not involved. 
No, Hartman's not, but Royland is. Hartman has his other own thing that he does, which is uh, Hartman Quest. Hartman Quest. Yeah, I've seen Hartman Quest. It's pretty funny. So, but I mean, they each have side projects as well. They get in, in the way. And I know Hartman, there's rumors that Hartman's going to be working on a community movie. But yeah, no, Solar Opposites on Hulu, from what I've seen, it's basically just like Rick and Morty. Only there are aliens on Earth. So maybe that should be something we can talk about for a sci-fi summer. Uh, yeah, I have to take, I have to, you know, give it a watch, but absolutely, yeah. I would too, so maybe we can do that. Well, on that note, I think that's our episode this week. Fuck Jerry. Fuck Jerry, oh, man. man.